gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And... Uh, I think last week I said we were going to be doing a special episode this week with a special guest, and that's been moved to next week. And so we're going to take some time to wrap up this series that we've been doing since, um, I guess, about the fall of last year, where we've been talking about a lot of essential doctrines, and, and we've been talking about law and gospel, and antinomianism, and legalism, and all kinds of important stuff. If you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Theology Gals, you can support us with a few dollars a month on Patreon or give a one-time donation on PayPal. There's links to do that on our website, theologygals.com, and that just covers our expenses, equipment, hosting fees, those sorts of things. And I also wanted to mention Sola Gratia. They are an apparel company, and they've got a lot of great shirts they they have a lot of apparel for women, also children, and even have some really cute onesies for babies. And they've got some other products there too. So check them out. I will put a link in our episode notes. Um, the website is solagratiaco.com. I got to tell you something, Rachel, right before you and I recorded, there is a video going around on Twitter and I'm not going to say who this person is, but he's a well-known, I think, SBC pastor. And it's just a short clip, maybe 30, 30 seconds to a minute. And in it, he says that um, he's talking about when Jesus is leaving. And he says, well, G Jesus said he wasn't actually leaving, but he was changing forms. And he's basically this pastor is basically describing modalism in what he's saying. This is an SBC pastor. And it reminded me, with us going through this series, 
why it's so important for us to understand these essential doctrines. That's that's really astounding. So, like Jesus changed from the form of the Son of God to the Spirit? Is that? Yeah, that's essentially what he was saying. Yeah, no. This is why it's so important. You know, when we have a new Christian, mm. we don't ex- expect them to even... You know, I feel like even myself as a Christian for a long time, I'm learning to understand the Trinity more and things like that. We don't expect a new believer to understand all of these, all of the intricacies of the Trinity and, and their learning and growing and their knowledge of, of God. Um, but this is a pastor who's been to seminary, um, basically describing an old heresy that, that was called a heresy since the early church. So... But it's a good reminder, I think, to our listeners, too, why it's so important for each of us to understand the essential doctrines. So let's start with what what we've talked about. Um, we're going to just do an overview. And if you've missed any of these episodes, you know, I'll link them in the episode notes, all the episodes in this series. But let's um, start with talking about our creeds and confessions. And when we talked about the creeds, and confessions, the creeds really are a description of those essential doctrines, what you must believe to be a Christian. I really liked what you talked about in that episode, those first order doctrines and second order doctrines, and that that was, I think, helpful. Yeah, that um, that idea of theological triage comes from an Al Mohler article that um, Amy Bird and others have, have referenced before, and I think it's really helpful to think through that way. It's talking about the difference between, you know, the in our foundational doctrines, the creeds and confessions, what things are, you know, first order doctrines, and you know, the quote is that these are these doctrines represent the most fundamental truths of the Christian faith, and a denial of these doctrines represents nothing less than an eventual denial of Christianity itself. Um, so these would be things like uh, the Trinity, uh, justification by faith alone. These are things that we we can't just agree to disagree about, um, and still be under the the um, and still call ourselves Christians. Now, there are people who hold to some beliefs um, out of ignorance. There are people who believe some things about the Trinity or about justification, and you know we're not here to say that they aren't believers. You know, we're just talking about you know, when it says the eventual denial of Christianity itself, it can lead to that. These are ones that are so seriously fundamental to our faith that denying them leads to bad places. I, I think that we even think of how we have unity with our Baptist brothers and sisters because we have unity in these essential doctrines, right. even though we may differ on some second and third tier doctrines. Right. So then, you know, the the second tier, second order doctrines would be things like um, the way we do baptism, the the structure of our churches, uh, how leadership is set up, and so these are still serious. But they, uh, we can recognize that people who disagree with us are still Christians. But the disagreements that we have, like for example, over baptism, means that if I believe that uh, we should baptize babies, and someone else believes that people should only be baptized when they have given uh, their own confession of faith, um, those two beliefs uh, would not be able to coexist as the same doctrine in the same church. Two people who hold those views um, 
could conceivably be in the same church, but the church itself would have one belief or the other. Then the third would be the third order doctrines. These are things that Christians can agree to disagree over. These are things that, you know, even people within a congregation, uh, that it's, it's considered unimportant, not unimportant, it's considered unessential, uh, which view you hold on this. And we see this with things like uh, the views of the end times, the, the millennial views, and um, you know, even things like what style of music should we play in church. These are things that are not essential to being Christian, and they are not essential to the definition or the the distinctions of a particular denomination. Right. You can have people in, I mean, you have two different churches in the same denomination that may have differences on some of these third order doctrines. Right. And, you know, that we, we gave a quote before, in that episode from Michael Horton that I thought was really helpful in talking about creeds and confessions. And he said, it's not that the Bible for its many pages is unclear, nor that its writers are contradictory, but that it contains difficult passages which lend themselves easily to distortion based on ignorance and instability. For nearly two millennia, creeds, confessions, and catechisms have provided the necessary constraints against ignorance and instability. And I thought that was a really helpful way to, to think about why it's important that we know what we believe and that we understand the creeds and confessions that form those guidelines of our faith. Yeah, I like that that quote from him. And then something you just said reminds me on the white horse and what Michael Horton says every week, know what you believe and why you believe it. Mm. And cause that's kind of what we're talking about here, that Absolutely. that is important. So the next thing we talked about, we talked about the Trinity and we really talked with Glenn Butner about his book, the son who learned obedience on talked about ESS and EFS. And, you know, we did have a, a post in the group this week, Rachel, that maybe brings up a question for this. And, um, you know, it's, well, actually, before I get to that question, I have to tell you, I was doing some reading recently. And before the Trinity debate happened, I think it was an article from 2011. And in this article, the person who was writing, and this was, um, I'm, I'm not sure how they would classify themselves, but they were conservative from a conservative denomination. It wasn't a, um, egalitarian, um, so, but I'm not sure what they would say. But in this article, this person actually said specifically, and this is 2011 before the Trinity debate, that um, complementarianism believes in ESS. I thought that was really interesting because that's often debated now whether complementarians act what whether it's part of complementarianism or not. Yeah, it, that is very interesting, very telling because it's certainly um, evident in the research that I've done that those who founded the movement, the complementarianism movement, um, you know, you have guys like Wayne Grudem who. Um, are the early proponents of ESS, and, and those doctrines are in the early documents from complementarianism. So, you know, it's there. I don't know that everyone, I certainly don't think everyone who signed on early on knew it was there or believed it, or still believes it, believes it now. But it, it is certainly part of the very fabric of the movement. 
And you and I have talked about, I know for myself, and I've come to you several times with these, um, when I went back and realized how much this was taught in everything. It was everywhere. And some of those people have have backed off and said, okay, I realize now I was wrong here. Some of them haven't. Um, but it, it was all over the place. I remember when I was first learning about this, and I would send you a screenshot and say, is this ESS? You know, because it was everywhere. It is everywhere. It's in, in resources, in resources where you wouldn't expect to find it. Like, just things that aren't on discussions of the Trinity aren't on this, that, or the other that would be like, oh, well, that's obviously going to be discussing ESS. Uh, or the relationship between the Father and the Son. And it shows up in resources for men, for women, for children, um, study Bibles. It's It really is all over the place. Well, the question that had come in the group, and you are so much more well-versed on this topic than I am, so I'll, I'll throw it at you, was uh, the person used John fourteen twenty eight, where it says the Father is greater than I, and said, well, this is... Um, proof of ESS. Yeah, um, I have dealt with that passage um, in a couple places explaining why that's not what it's saying. Um, it's helpful to go and read, uh, you know, uh, commentaries from people, you know, Reformed people before ESS became a thing and read what they say about those passages. And um, for example, you can look at John Calvin, you can look at Matthew Henry, which is a little um, easier to understand in some ways than the language in John Calvin's commentaries. Across the board, within Reformed theology, when they talk about passages like that, when, when Jesus makes those comparative passages or talks about, uh, you know, he comes to do uh, the will of his Father when, he, when he's talking about uh, the Father is greater than I, all of those those passages um, Jesus is speaking as, um, after the Incarnation, He is speaking as um, the God-man. So, He is both um, you know, truly God and truly man. And as a man, as he, having taken on humanity, um, he, he has a human nature that He submits to the Father's will. Uh, he, uh, when He speaks of, you know, the Father is greater um, there is a comparison there. He's talking about um, going to be with the Father being greater than being here. So, in this passage, um, Jesus is, you know, talking about going away. He's talking about sending the Helper. Um, this is this passage. This is what's going on in this passage. And then he says, um, "I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I." And what he's talking about is. That the to be with the Father is a a better state than to stay here, right? It's a comparison there between the two the two options, right? Being here or being there. Well, one one thing I would say, Rachel, is mm-hmm. to encourage people to read Glenn's book because yes. there actually is he. I actually went back, and um, one reason I do enjoy my Kindle is because I was able to look up that verse and see where he spoke about it in the book. and um, So, what did there, he say in the book? It's too long <laughs> for me to repeat. <laughs> but he had, he was, talk, he, he was talking about that along with talking about some other, some other similar things. Mm-hmm. And 
I think just, well, like you said, this was, this was Jesus, um, God and man. It was in the incarnation. It, it was not at, um, there's, there's no pointing to that being from eternity in that passage. Right. Okay. So as you know, I was saying that, um, when Jesus says this in John fourteen twenty eight, he's talking about uh, his his humanity and speaking as uh, the God Man. Uh, looking at both the commentary for Matthew Henry and John Calvin, uh, Matthew Henry explains in this passage that that the Father is greater means that Christ has humbled Himself in the incarnation and we're returning to His greater estate. Right, and the quote is. Uh, the reason of this is because the Father is greater than He, which, if it be proper, a proper proof of that for which it is alleged, must be understood thus, that His state with His Father would be much more excellent and glorious than His present state. His returning to His Father would be advancing of Him to a higher condition than that which He is in now, which is, that's a summary of what I was saying before. And then Calvin says, uh, This passage has been tortured in various ways. The Arians, in order to prove that Christ is some sort of inferior God, argued that he is less than the Father. Christ does not here make a comparison between the divinity of the Father and his own, nor between his own human nature and the divine essence of the Father, but rather between his present state and the heavenly glory to which he would soon after be received. So in this, the Father is not greater because he sent the Son, but returning to the Father is much greater than the involuntary humiliation of the Incarnation. I think that that right there ex- explains a lot. And, he, and Calvin's talking about the Arians. And, you know, when we look at the creeds, and we talked about this in our creeds episode, um, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, they were responding to, to different heretical errors that had come into the church. And I have some points from the Athanasian Creed. I will read very quickly. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. The Father is made of none, neither created or begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made or created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. In this trinity, none is afore or after another. None is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. In the Athanasian Creed, why ESS is contrary to foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. You know, another one of the quotes that I think is important there, it's, it's when it talks about Jesus, uh, the Creed says that he is equal to the Father as touching his Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Right, which talks about the differences, um, you know, Jesus is both God and man, and it's important that we understand and not confuse the two. It gets us into one of the other episodes that we talked about on the humanity of Christ. Um, and it was necessary, of course, that Christ be both God and man. Uh, the confessions and the catechisms go through quite a detailed reasoning as to why. Uh, the short answer is, uh, in order to bear the wrath of God, and to um, have his, the, what he merited through his life and death and resurrection apply to all of those who are in Christ, he had to be God. And then in order for um, his sacrifice to, to apply to us as humans, he had to be human. And, you know, it's a quote, uh, what is uh, not assumed is not redeemed, what, what Christ 
took on in that human nature is what is um, what can be redeemed. So as humans, he represented us, and as uh, because he is God, his sacrifice and his life and death were able to apply to uh, more than just himself. On on the question of humanity of Christ, and even though we talked about this, Rachel, we. It was mentioned in the group when we were asking for questions, um, because it's been this real debate right now for various reasons. Um, some people saying empathy is a sin, and you know, I I tried to go and read what some of their arguments are, and they're playing around with definitions of empathy and sympathy, and there's some bizarre stuff in there. But I think the, one of the things that we talked about on that episode is that's really an attack on the very nature of Christ. Um, and we gave examples in that episode. We don't have to go through them again here. We gave examples in that episode of, of Christ's empathy. And uh, I'll read Hebrews four sixteen and 17. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And one of the things that they'll say is, well, yes, we should have sympathy, but not empathy. But I think that with some of the examples that we gave... Well, it was only it, well. There are some, it's a newer some translations that use it now. Uh-huh. Uh, in this passage, they use empathize instead of sympathize. the The word itself is only about a hundred years old. Um, the concept there is a lot longer, but yeah, because it does describe when you see these amp- examples of Christ, and I think maybe within this discussion, um, people are misunderstanding empathy because like one person said so if i go through something does that mean that other people should feel exactly how i feel well if i'm empathizing if you're going through something difficult and i'm showing empathy to you there's no way for me to feel exactly how you feel no but it's it's because i'm having empathy that i would cry with you and and care for you through that difficult time right and when when Scripture tells us that we are to weep with those who weep, right? Yes, that. <laughs> it is telling us that we are to enter into the suffering of others around us. And you see it most clearly when Christ wept at uh, Lazarus's graveside. He knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that Lazarus was not staying dead in the grave. But he was moved with compassion, with empathy, for those around him, for the death and for sadness and the pain, for sin and all that it represents. And he wept with them. Right? And that is our example of how we are to weep with those who weep. And it doesn't mean that we, you know, we leave people in sin and misery. But, you know, like Job's friends, we can learn that the best thing to do sometimes is sit and be silent and grieve with people and not open our mouths immediately. Um and we can then, because we are weeping with those who weep, and because we have been through hard things that we can relate to, which is the purpose of empathy, that we can relate to others through what we've been through, then as we are able, we can comfort them as we are encouraged to comfort others with the comfort we have received, and encourage them to fix their eyes on Christ. And that is, that is the heart of empathy as Christians. 
You know, I when I was in high school, I hung out with a bunch of different Christians, and I had a, a good friend. And I don't remember what we were all studying at the time, but we'd get together and study scripture and and whatnot. And I remember very clearly um, this friend of mine calling me on the phone and saying, "I know we we think of sympathy with Christ, but he said, I think I I think this is demonstrating empathy." Mm-hmm. And um, and we had this long talk about it. So it's funny thinking back now with this discussion that um, my friends and I were discussing this in high school, not knowing there was any debate, but discussing this very thing that those examples, like the one you gave, mm-hmm. is is Christ demonstrating empathy. Yeah, And that's what we see. You know, the Westminster Confession talks about him having, you know, fellow f- feeling, right? That he, he relates because he has been through what it is to suffer like we have, except without sin. And that's what we get from the passage from Hebrews. And we get that in passages on suffering too. I mean, it's because it's because Christ um, lived and suffered. Understand our sufferings. The other one that we talked about was servant leadership. I I don't know. I think I've maybe told you this privately, but when I was um, telling my husband that these things were being debated, he's like, "Wait, you're serious? This isn't Babylon B or something." I'm like, no, I'm serious. He's like, how are these debated? You know, so servant leadership, you've, you know a lot about this because you've written about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, Christ is our example of servant leadership and he very specifically calls us to it. And you see it in two passages in particular, uh, in Matthew 20 and and the same story is related, I think in Mark. Um, I don't remember if it's also in Luke. And it says, uh, you know, the the twelve are beginning to argue about uh, who's going to be, you know, leaders, who's going to sit, because uh, of course they're still seeing Christ as coming as the Messiah to lead, literally on earth like a like David, and so they're like, who's going to sit on, on your right hand, on your left hand, who's going to be the next in charge after you? And um, so Jesus calls them and says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's correcting their idea of leadership to say, if you're going to, if you want to lead, you need to serve. And then in John uh, 13, it gives the, the passage where he washes the, the disciples' feet, and you know, he tells them, um, If I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So he gives them an example of what it is to serve by doing it himself and telling them, telling all of us, that those of us who are called by his name are called to be servants and to serve others. And even in our leadership, we are to be servants. Yeah, and those passages are so clear. Mm. Absolutely. Um, So we talked about the Holy Spirit. Again, I'll... Uh, recommend Michael Horton's 
book on the Holy Spirit, Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, because I think it's helpful. And because I think reading that book, even though um, I know all of these ways that the Spirit is at work, you know, I've, I've thought through these, it just really was like, wow, thinking about the Holy Spirit's work and how much the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Uh, so I'll uh, read just a few things that we know. God, okay, so the Holy Spirit is God. We sometimes put him like in a different category. We have the Father and Son and then the Spirit over here. But the Holy Spirit is is God, a, a person of the Trinity. He's not a force or a power. He's not impersonal. And he's not a feeling or emotion. And, you know, I think that even I was almost taught like the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's in you, you're going to feel some, I don't know, euphoria chills, something like that. But the Holy Spirit is at work in you as a believer. So the the Holy Spirit, um, when we think of the Trinity, because I had mentioned he's a um, person of the Trinity. And so remember the Trinity is one God, three persons, equal in power, glory, and majesty. So that includes the Spirit. So the Spirit is worthy of worship, was at work in creation and redemption and the life of the believer. So a quote that we had done on um, that episode from Michael Horton's A Christian Faith. In every external work of the Godhead, the Father is the source, the Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the one who brings about the intended effect. I love that quote. I think it's very helpful. Yeah, I love that quote too. Um, The other one that we use that was along that same lines is from Calvin from the Institutes. Uh, This distinction is that to the Father is attributed the beginning of action, the fountain and source of all things. To the Son, wisdom, counsel, and arrangement in action, while the energy and efficacy of action is assigned to the Spirit. And in Horton's Rediscovering the Holy Spirit, he says, He, the Spirit, is the person of the Godhead who brings everything to completion. The Spirit changes everything. And I really enjoyed, that was a recent one that we did, I really enjoyed that discussion on the Holy Spirit and how He's at work in our lives. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things we talked about in there is that that we'll have um, charismatic girls join the group and get get in discussions with me. Well, but you're discounting the work of the Holy Spirit. And all that they're talking about is we're not... um, recognizing that we still have the apostolic sign gifts and we don't recognize um, certain things, I guess, in in worship and overemphasis on emotions and things like that. And so, but really, I think that we understand even greater as Reformed Christians the work of the Spirit. So, we'll talk about justification by faith alone. And this is so important and I have to say right now there's almost debates of it even though they wouldn't say debates of it which I think a little bit of a a revival of federal vision theology but repackaged not necessarily called that and okay well first of all as reformed Christians our doctrine of justification by faith alone is essential it's essential to the Christian faith, to the gospel. Um, Martin Luther said it's the article where on which the church stands or falls. That's, this is important. This is foundational. And then we've got federal vision. 
And, you know, I wanted to say real quick, because a couple of people, I know we said this in our episodes, and maybe some people didn't listen to both parts or whatever, but um, this is not just a Presbyterian problem. While a Baptist holding to a similar theology is going to have differences, it is possible for a Baptist to hold to a federal vision in a Baptist way. And it is a attack on justification by faith alone. And sola fide, faith alone. And this is where, you know, we didn't really get into this before, but I wanted to say as well that, you know, the the Baptists, the the ones that were from, especially those that came out of, you know, the Congregationalism, the nonconformists in England, right? They all came out of the same Reformation, right? They they were just like the Presbyterians did that these ideas about justification by faith alone are found, are fundamental not just for Presbyterians but also for Baptists, and. You know, what we're seeing right now is not only that it's possible for people to say, you know, I'm a Baptist and I hold to these ideas, or I can um, I can relate to these ideas uh, uh, that we're seeing under Federal Vision, but the Federal Vision teachings are, are making considerable inroads, in particular right now, into Baptist, um, I guess the Baptist world, if you will, um, with you know, a lot of overlap going on with conferences and um, speakers and topics and support. And so, you know, if you are Baptist and you consider yourself uh, part of the Reformation and belief of these doctrines, then it's important that you pay attention and not write this problem off as simply a Presbyterian intramural discussion. One of the things that's happened recently in what Rachel was even talking about currently what we're going through right now is that there are people teaching federal vision theology and not calling it that. Mm -hmm. And these people that teach it say, well, good works is not the ground of our salvation. Christ alone is the ground of our salvation. People are saying, well, that sounds right to me. And that's, I'm going to read a little section from from the RCUS report, which I have looked to before, but um, it's important to know this. Um, This is actually talking about Doug Wilson specifically. Though Wilson is careful to say repeatedly that good works are not in themselves the ground of our salvation, and that the ver- the ground of every aspect of our salvation is Christ, and so people would all say, you know, amen, that sounds great, but then they go on to say he neglects to point out that the ground of justification has never been the issue in the justification controversy. The issue is whether good works are in any way an instrument of justification. So what what I'm seeing happening, and I've had girls come to me saying things like, well, I listened to this teacher over here, and he said that our good works aren't the ground. But the thing is, is that teacher's neglecting to go on and say that he does believe that our good works are in some way an instrument. And that that's a perversion of justification by faith alone. Yeah, we talked about that last week in our yes. episode on good works and about what good works aren't in particular. So if you missed that, you can go back and hear uh, particularly that section on it about how uh, it's important to put good works in the proper understanding, uh, you know, what... Uh, Scott Clark says about it's not whether but why why we do good yes work. and that's it's it's absolutely key in this discussion. But one of the things I want to talk about um, the other thing that came up in the Federal Vision episode is that in Federal Vision 
they deny the covenant of works. And among federal visionists, some deny it, some do not. But this is what happens, and this is what happens with one of the teachers in particular. He says, I don't deny the covenant of works. But then he goes on and he renames it. And then he says it's a gracious covenant. And I know for those who might not understand covenant theology and a lot of this, when you take the covenant of works and you turn it into a gracious covenant, that's no longer the covenant of works. So they want to say, oh, I believe in the covenant of works, so they don't get in trouble from, you know, reformed people. But they're redefining it as something different that's not the covenant of works. And I know a lot of this since we won't get into this a lot now, maybe when we talk about covenant theology, we can, which we're going to do soon, we can bring this up. There is a there are a lot of things that fall apart in our theology if we call the covenant of works gracious. We, we talked about this when we talked to John Fonville, which is another one. If you didn't hear those episodes, they're really good to go back and listen to because he covers so much really important information here. But we talked about how when you confuse law and gospel, which will, you know, another thing that we talked about uh, in this series. Um, so, you, if you bring grace into the covenant of works, if you bring works into the, to the covenant of grace, then both are are undone, right? There is there is no grace yes. in works, right? And so, when we when we confuse those categories, we make a mess of of so many of the foundational doctrines of of our faith. And in particular, we make a mess of how we are saved. So we might talk about that a little bit more when we talk about covenant theology, just um, because I think it's important to understand this, but that, you know, it's, it's exactly what Rachel was saying there. Because now it's undone, because you've turned the covenant works into gracious covenant, you really don't have any law gospel distinctions. And so even within federal vision, um, you, you have these things that necessitate other things. And, and we talked about this, you know, quite extensively in the episodes, but just very briefly, right? When you, you know, first when you mess with the covenant of works and you redefine it, then you lose also the distinction between the visible and invisible church. It changes the nature of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, it affects the doctrine of perseverance because you can they can be told that believers, real believers, can fall away. It changes uh, the, the doctrine of the atonement. It changes justification. It changes perseverance, and it it really undermines assurance. Well, it it also it changes what you believe about the imputation of Christ's active obedience, which is why some federal visionists deny it altogether. Absolutely, and and some say, well, I don't deny it, but then they're redefining it. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and I forgot, we had talked about this exact thing in our episodes with um, with John Fonville, so I'm glad you mentioned that. You want to hear more on that? Listen to our Federal Vision episodes, because I think they're really helpful. In fact, I Rage, when, when we did those episodes, we said we want to explain this in, in an easier to understand way, because people are confused and I know what it's like when you want to go study something and it seems like this is so confusing and overwhelming I don't think I can ever get it and you don't even try but we tried to explain it in an easy to understand way so we when we talked about the law we we spent some time talking about the law the civil ceremonial and moral law and all as aspects of the old covenant law are fulfilled in Christ but two of the three aspects are also abolished with the fulfillment while one aspect carries over into the new covenant so we we do believe that we are to obey the moral law that's no, so absolutely you're right we we do believe that we should obey the moral law despite what people have accused us of 
And and isn't it isn't it just so fascinating? Because the the very reason why this is important is because it's so easy to fall into one ditch or another. Mm-hmm. You know, this antinomianism or legalism ditch. And anyways, what, so one of the things we talked about was the three uses of the law: civil, pedagogical, and normative. Um, when we talked with John Fonville, I'm pretty sure we used this quote either with him or in um, one of the episodes before that with On the Law. Um, there's a quote from his dissertation that says, all three uses of the law, the civil, pedagogical, normative, are always present in the believer's life. However, these three uses do not function the same to begin with. For unbelievers, the second use of law, the law, the pedagogical, is primary, and the third use of the law, the normative, does not even apply. For believers, the third use, the normative, of the law becomes primary. In this sense, the law functions as a rule of life, guide of gratitude, providing the norms for the Christian life. Um, and I thought that was just really helpful to think about. So, the, the moral law is not our means or our grounds of our justification, you know, if we believe in justification by faith alone, but the moral law does teach us how to live. Yeah, we referenced uh, Heidelberg Catechism, which is split into guilt, grace, and gratitude. You know, the law shows us our sinfulness before God, and the law drives us to Christ, and He's gracious with us. And then now, as um, as saved children of God, that that third use that we live in gratitude to the Lord for what He has done for us. And we don't deny that. <laughs> and we have the Holy Spirit working in us to help us uh, want to obey, to help us to be able to obey, and to uh, help us perform the good works that we've been called to. Since we just talked a little bit about law and gospel, we got a, one question about our law and gospel. She said she's been pondering for a few days how to reconcile the hard sayings of Christ, denying yourself, hating mother, father, etc., in comparison with your love for Christ, with the law gospel paradigm? I guess what, what the question means is, you know, talking about, you know, as we said, that there are no um, imperatives in the gospel, right? The gospel is not a do this and live, right? Um, right. But I think this would be an example of this is a live and do this, right? Because we are uh, saved by grace, because we live according to the gospel, because we are in the covenant of grace, and we are united to Christ and the Spirit is at work in us, then we are called to show our faith by uh, denying ourselves, by, um, by putting um, you know, greater priority on our relationship with Christ than with any other relationship we have, which is the comparison between hating your father and mother versus loving Christ, right? That He is of priority. Because um, it reorients, and all of these th- these things, denying yourself, hating your father and mother, these hard sayings are all about reorienting yourself to how you live as a child of God, at how you live as a Christian who is united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. So I think that if we understand it as um, you know getting things in the right order, right, that we are saved by faith, um, by faith alone and grace by grace alone and Christ alone, right? We can now live in these ways that honor Christ out of gratitude because the Spirit is at work in us, which really ties along with several of the things we've already said. And if you look at 
antinomianism and legalism. So with what Rachel was just talking about, some of those hard passages. Um, if you fall into the antinomian trap, then you're like, well, you know what? I, I'm redeemed. Nothing I'm going to do is going to change that. Um, so I'm not really going to worry about living in obedience to the Lord. I don't think people say it blatantly like that, but it's the idea there. Um, so they're denying the third use because they look at those commands and say, well, I can never live up to that. Well, yeah, you can't live up to that, but we are growing in obedience and and ought to obey. But then the legalism trap where those some of those things become threats to the point that there's an overemphasis of looking inside ourselves for assurance and not a lot of looking to Christ and really where those good works flow from is a true understanding of the gospel. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's something I said in that, I think of the discussion with John Fonville, you know, that for each of us, um, we have tendencies to be antinomian about things we struggle with and legalists about things we don't. And, you know, so if, you know, if it's no big deal to me to not do this one sin, um, I can be very proud of the fact that I don't have any trouble with that sin and hold other people to this standard that I've made for myself. Uh, but if it's an area that I struggle with, then I can, you know, kind of soothe my conscience and say, well, you know, it's no big deal because, you know, I'm saved and I, there's forgiveness and, you know, it's it's all good, right? And I think it's just, it, it's a misunderstanding um, as you led up into this, as you said, uh, of the purpose of good works and how they function in our lives about how we should be living. Um, you know, the good works don't save us, right? As we've said, good works are not how we're justified. Good works are not um, how we are ultimately saved, right? Um, they aren't. That's just not what good works are. Um, but as we referenced in that episode, uh, that when Scott Clark talks about, you know, it's that the article that he wrote, the not whether but why, right? No one in in serious Christian discussions, no one is denying that we need to do or that we're called to good works. The discussion, the debate is over why we do them. And if we're understanding works according to um according to the Reformation, according to these essential doctrines and the things that we've learned in these discussions, our good works are done, as the Heidelberg Catechism talks about, out of gratitude. They are done because the Spirit is at work in us. They are done because we are a new creation. Um, and we've been, we are made to do these good works. And they show, these are the fruit, the evidence of our changed lives and of our faith. Amen to that. And I, I think to going back and listening to that episode, the first one we did with John on the gospel uh, is foundational. Uh, that you got to understand that right first. And we've talked about, even on the Federal Vision episodes, and last week, it's not, Federal Vision's just one example of theologies that err on on faith and works. And we talked about Catholics and talked about some other two stage justifications in our circles and so listen all of the episodes <laughs> go back and listen if you didn't <laughs> and i think that what we're going to wrap up on is is a great place to um wrap up and that is on assurance 
And one of the articles I put in there was one that Rachel wrote on Can We Have Assurance? And um, so read that article if you haven't. It's, it's very, very helpful. But assurance was part of the Reformation. If you ever watch, I mean, we, we read the stories about the Reformation, but I always think of the 19, I think it's a 1953 Luther movie, and there's um, some, uh, I think, you know, Catholics on the, on the steps of the church. I think it's the church. They're purchasing indulgences and um, doing all of these things that they've been taught um, with all their relics and, and whatnot, and there's no assurance there. They're hoping that they can do enough to be acceptable in the Lord's um, eyes. And that's what drove Luther. Yes. Oh, yes. Great point. You know, he, he, he was tortured over whether or not he could do enough, whether or not he could repent enough. And that verse that really helped him understand that just shall live by faith. So they're not living by obedience, they're living by faith in Christ and His finished work. Mm. That And that's right there why we have assurance, because it's not about us, it's about the Lord. It, it does tie in. The reason we, we talked about assurance under this with the essential doctrines is because assurance is you know, the, the, the blessed fruit of understanding justification by faith alone. It's the it's why we can be at peace. It's why we can understand, you know, when we understand the proper distinction between the law and the gospel and the, the appropriate place for our good works, we can be assured that, you know, it's not about whether or not we can do enough. Right? We we have been saved. Our salvation is accomplished, it is finished because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. He has has purchased a full salvation for his people and we can rest upon his work for our salvation Uh, we have been united to christ we receive all of his benefits and those include um, persevering until the day of redemption and we just it's it's so beautiful we don't have to wonder if we've done enough we don't have to live in fear that we're going to be rejected at the judgment day uh, and as Philippians 1 says, God has begun a work, good work in us, and he will bring it to completion. We can have assurance. Um, I, I love the picture, and I, I talk about this in that article that Colleen mentioned, and I know we mentioned it in the uh, episode on assurance, that the Spirit is our earnest, our pledge, the promise that we are sealed in Christ. We cannot be lost. And, you know, no matter what our feelings are, we have security that Christ is a firm foundation, and we know that nothing can separate us from Christ, uh, and that is uh, a beautiful promise. Yeah, I'll I'll mention uh, something I thought of while you were talking that, and I've mentioned it before, but as an example, Psalm thirteen, as you were talking about, it's not how we feel, but Psalm 13 starts off with, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you keep hiding your face? Obviously, great despair. The psalmist is in. God's not forgotten him. You know, we, we sometimes feel things that are not actual reality. And so the psalmist, you know, Lord, have, you know, you've forgotten me. Well, the Lord hasn't forgotten him. He may feel that way. But at the end 
of that psalm. It says, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. Some versions say mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And some versions say kindly. And so we can rest in what we know to be true about the Lord and his and his gospel, his promises to us, um, his finished work for us. And we can rest in that even when we're feeling uncertain. We can look to Christ and remember that he is full of mercy and kindness and has brought us salvation. Amen. You know, that leads us, you know, as we finish up this series, you know, we're going to begin a new series on the church. Um, but before we do, we're going to have, you know, we talked about having a special guest. We are going to talk about, um, you know, anxiety and depression and the the issues that surround uh, those topics and our assurance and um, how our feelings are affected. But our assurance ultimately is in Him, as we've said. And so, this is another place we want to talk about is kind of a practical application before we turn and look at uh, the church. And, you know, I, I'm glad that we're going to be talking about that, Rachel, because a lot of times if you um, suffer with um, ongoing depression or anxiety, a lot of times people will struggle with assurance in that. Because sometimes when you're suffering with depression, when you're suffering with anxiety, some of, you feel things that are not reality. And so I know, I, I'll just say, I know we've got listeners that, you know, struggle with depression and struggle with assurance because of it. And so I hope, um, I'm excited that we're doing that episode too. So do we want to give some, some hints of what's to come? Sure. I'll let you, I'll let you choose which hints to give people. (laughs) Okay. Uh, well, in talking about the church, we are looking forward to having some special guests on to talk about various topics. Um, we plan to talk about some, um, some exciting topics such as uh, covenant theology and talking about uh, women in the church, talking about um, ordination. Um, and uh, we have a, uh, we plan to talk about theonomy, which should be another way to make friends and influence people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We just lost 30 listeners. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, some great things to look forward to. Really excited about some of the guests we have coming on and uh, look forward to having these discussions and hearing your feedback. Great guests, too, because I'll, I'll tell you, a couple of my favorite guests are coming back on. So, that'll, uh, it'll be like a mystery in the group. Let's see if we can figure out who Colleen's talking about. But, but then we have a couple of guests that I've n- never had that I'm really excited to have on. So, some really amazing guests. (laughs) I'm excited. Yes, very, me too. So, well, I hope this was helpful. I I really enjoyed doing this, Rachel. Um, Maybe this is something we can do with... uh, when we do other series as a wrap up like this, we usually do a question and answer, but we didn't get that many questions. And so Rachel and I decided to do this. And I think it's a good overview of our last few months of episodes. Well, thank you so much to our listeners for joining us and we'll be back next week.